0: We're continuing in our series through the book of Acts called uh, Vintage Church. And today we're covering Acts chapter 8 verses 9 to 25. Verses 9 to 25. So about 15 or so verses that we will explore today. By the way, I'm thinking about it now and I'll probably forget later. Bernice wanted me to announce that uh, she is going to lead a... Um, what is it called? A Christmas gift exchange uh, for all those who are interested. I think some of you did this last year, uh, and so she wants uh, you to think about whether or not you want to participate and let her know uh, by next Sunday. If you have questions, talk to her because she knows all the details. All right, is everybody in Acts chapter 8? Found verse 9? That's where we are going to start today. Let me pray again, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Lord Jesus, we need you. We needed you to rescue us from sin in the first place. We need you to rescue us from sin every day. And I pray that you would be here. You have sent your Holy Spirit here. I pray that he would manifest himself in our midst through deep conviction and power to conquer sin, power to live holy lives, power to pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen. So a celebrity has shocked us all by unexpectedly coming to faith in Christ. He was the one we least expected to proclaim that Jesus is the king. He's repented and been baptized. And the world is watching him and waiting for him to slip up. That's the situation before us. But I'm not talking about Kanye West. I'm talking about Simon the sorcerer. Um, I want us to read verse 9. And We're not going to read the whole text right now, but we'll, we'll read some of it and come back to it. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. Now, if you've paid attention uh, to at least pop culture news these last month or so, you know that Kanye West has recently made waves by professing his faith in Christ. Um, Simon the Sorcerer was a celebrity in his day. I don't know if he had Kanye's stature or not, but he was a pretty big deal in Samaria. And if you remember last week, the gospel traveled to Samaria in fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the, go- the disciples would bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But for several years the disciples just enjoyed the comfortable life that they had in Jerusalem and it took the persecution and assassination of Stephen for the church to be scattered on mission and ending up last week in Samaria. So last week we saw that Philip went to Samaria he he crossed an uncomfortable boundary, he took a risk for the sake of the gospel, and he ended up in Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel there, and he's doing signs and wonders. Well, as he's doing signs and wonders, he encounters this local celebrity. The guy that, before Philip showed up, was the one who was doing signs and wonders, this guy that is called Simon the Sorcerer. He makes a profession of faith in Christ, and it makes an impact But this story before us is not just about uh, Simon and his deeds and misdeeds. I think it's a story about Jesus. Um, And so today, I want us to to explain Jesus in relation to three ideas Um, Jesus and magic, Jesus and power, and Jesus and prodigals. When you go back to verse 9, it says a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people, while claiming to be somebody great. Uh, The word sorcery uh, is just the the word for magic. Uh, Simon is a magician. Now, a lot of times, depending especially on what culture you hail from, uh, you might think of magic as in like uh, card tricks. You go pay an illusionist to deceive you and make a bird disappear and things like that. People pay good money to see those sorts of tricks. That is not the kind of magic that the Bible is referring to here. It's not talking about a, a cheap parlor trick or, or an illusion uh, that everybody knows is fake and, and you're just paying to have your senses uh, astounded. That is not what the reference is here. The, the word magic, or in the our translation that we're using, it's translated sorcery. The Greek word is magic. Uh, And the idea is that you are using spells and incantations to try to manipulate the spirit world to do your bidding. That's the idea of magic. And magic in the first century world of Samaria, magic was a really big deal. Uh, Magic in the ancient world was deeply connected with the spiritual world of darkness and demons. Now, if you're sitting here saying, I don't know about all this stuff, Stephen, I've never encountered a demon, never seen dark magic, and maybe you think I'm smoking something. That's okay. I don't mind if you do. But in the Bible, this was a very real thing. And in fact, uh, historians who don't have any sort of Christian axe to grind, they tell us that the ancient world was overrun with uh, curses and spells, uh, witchcraft, potions, poisons. There was, a, there was a, a way to manipulate the spirit world to do just about anything you wanted. And so there were these people, these priests and these priestesses who would practice these dark arts. And for a fee, they could employ their dark arts to accomplish whatever you needed. You need that girl over there to fall in love with you? The guy's like, I got the spell. I got the potion. Like, what comes down to us is like crazy legend stuff, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's like, you know, some weird tale of King Arthur and his knights. They really did that in Samaria. They really did stuff like that. Uh, some of it was just uh, con artists, right? People who were like, oh, yeah, I can, sure, I can, I can make this happen. Just pay this, and, I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll work that. But some of it was deeply entrenched in the mystery religions of the ancient day, and a lot of it was deeply connected What Christians would call the demonic. So, if you're familiar with uh, sort of the Christian story, we believe that God created humans, animals, and he created angels. And that a number of those angels fell from grace. They sinned against God, their leader being Lucifer, who became the devil. And that these fallen angels, also called demons, waged an all out war against the holy God of the universe. And so Jesus comes to rescue the world from the clutches of sin and death and to deal a decisive, fatal blow to the devil at the cross. That's what Jesus comes and accomplishes, among other things. But Samaria hadn't gotten that message yet. Samaria is overrun. Simon the sorcerer is the local legend. Simon the sorcerer is the local celebrity. He's the Kanye West of his day, and he is called, according to verse 10, the great power of God. In uh, Probably the best way to read that, if you're reading it in Greek, as this verse was originally written, this is a reference to deity. People are saying, there's God over there. God in the flesh. That's basically what they're saying. I don't know if that's what Simon was saying about himself, but that's what other people seem to be saying about him. And he's letting them say it. He's like, man, feels good to be called God. I like it. And he's like, I can do the stuff that God does. I have all of this magical ability. I have all of these powers and it's real power. As I said, some of it was, you know, some of it was just a con artist at work, but a lot of it is real power. How do I know that? Well, if you go back, um, you remember the story of the Exodus when God sent Moses to set the slaves free from Israel and there's this power encounter that ensues where Moses does a bunch of miracles. Do you remember that story? And so he he turns his rod into a snake, and the Egyptian magicians who work for the Pharaoh they're like, oh, "We can do that too. We can we can work signs and wonders." And so they they do some things. And so then Moses Moses ups the ante and he does another miracle. And then the magicians come back and they're like, "Yeah, but we can we can do something too." And so all of a sudden there's this contest of who has more supernatural power. And eventually Moses wins out. He can do things that these magicians can't do because Moses is in the service of the true God of heaven and earth, the one who has ultimate power. But the Bible never says that the Egyptian magicians are just faking it. They have real power. They're doing real things. Real signs and wonders. And I think that's the situation in Samaria. The Samaritan people are oppressed by a quote unquote miracle worker who claims to be, or at least lets people think, that he is God in the flesh and that he's here to rescue them. The Samaritan people, I mentioned this last week, they had a different Bible. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, that was their Bible. and they believed that the, um, uh, the Messiah was going to come. They called him something else. Uh, could be that they think Simon is the guy. Or maybe they think that Simon is one of the prophets who's going to, you know, pave the way for the coming of this Messiah. But they are a people who is oppressed by a false teacher who is doing all of these signs and wonders. And people are like, man, that's pretty cool. He has real legitimate power. And the Bible does not attempt to dispute that Simon had real, legitimate power. But in the Bible, sorcery, magic, is tapping into the powers of darkness to try to affect something in the real world. You see, the ancients, they believed that there was a connection between the world of uh, the spiritual world and the material world. So many cultures in the world today still believe that. Um, and they believed that you could. Talk to some spirit, some force in the spirit world and have a real effect in the physical world. That's what they believed. And so Simon, the sorcerer, is taking advantage of that and he's trying to leverage his relationship with the demonic to accomplish something which will result in him getting rich. Ultimately, that's what it's all about. He wants to make some money. We also have this problem with magic in the modern world. We have some religions that really traffic in this embrace of magic, whether they are voodoo or santeria. But there's also a lot of more popular level versions of this. People who use crystals to divine their fate. Or people who read the horoscope which is an embrace of the stars and how the stars are deciding my destiny. In the Old Testament, the stars were usually connected, that idea was connected with this sense that there is this invisible force out there, this dark magic, these dark arts, and somehow we are going to allow them to control our destiny. Samaria, I don't think, is that much different from New York City. We, uh, we clean ourselves up and most of us don't go consult witch doctors or anything like that. Although I think it would go without saying that Christians ought not to be a part of that at all or get close to anything remotely close to that. But a lot of us might unwittingly be participants in this embrace of magic. Jesus, through Philip, Shows up in Samaria and Jesus shows himself to be better than magic. Philip is he's the dude. He's the man. Everybody in Samaria wants to be in a a relationship with Philip. I'm sorry, not Philip, he wants to be with Simon because Simon is the one who can who can manipulate the spirits to get you what you want. But then Philip shows up and he is doing signs and wonders. He is setting people free, and he's not charging any money for it. The people of Samaria are like, well, hold on. This is confusing. We thought Simon was the great power of God. Philip comes along, and he's doing signs and wonders. There are demon-possessed people, according to verse 7, who are being set free. The paralyzed and lame, from verse 7, are being healed, and they're walking free. And Philip hasn't charged us a dime. And so there is this power encounter that all of a sudden is bubbling up in Samaria, and Jesus is showing up in Samaria through the person of Philip and in the gospel that Philip is proclaiming, and Jesus is showing that he is better than magic. So because Jesus is better from magic, we run from it into him. Jesus conquers the darkness behind the magic. What's the big deal? Is it that I'm opposed to um, psychic readings for the sake of being opposed to psychic readings? No, I'm opposed to psychic readings and things like this because I'm opposed to the world of darkness. I'm opposed to the demonic. I'm opposed to the devil. And Jesus comes to Samaria and showcases his authority and his power over the devil so that everyone sees that Simon the sorcerer is a fraud. Philip is the real deal because he comes representing Jesus Christ who is better than magic. And Jesus has conquered the darkness that lies behind the magic. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus conquered the powers at the cross. They're already defeated. Jesus won the victory at the cross. Jesus and magic. Now, maybe you have questions about um, the practical application of this. How do, we, how do we run from magic? How do we pursue Jesus instead of magic? I think those are great questions to have um, in your small group this week as, as we talk. The second thing I want to discuss is Jesus and power. Jesus and power. Let's, let's keep reading at verse 14. Actually, let's go back to verse 13. It says, Even Simon himself believed. Simon believes in Jesus when he hears Philip. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So we talked about Jesus and magic. Now I want to talk about Jesus and power. According to verse 13, Simon himself believes in Jesus. He believes in the message that Philip is proclaiming. And then the apostles come down one verse later. Uh, Peter and John come from Jerusalem. Why do they show up? Because the text tells us that they heard that the Samaritans have embraced the gospel message. Now, mind you, they remember Jesus said we're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So they hear that the gospel is taking root in Samaria, and they're like, we should go check this out. So Peter and John come, apparently representing the the 12 apostles, and they show up there, and they realize that for some reason, the Christians that have, uh, the, the people of Samaria that have become Christians, they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. Like, you might recall, the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and empowered the Christians there in Jerusalem. But the Christians in Samaria have not yet received the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John, according to verse 17, lay hands on them, and the Samaritan Christians receive the Holy Spirit. Now, um, why does it happen this way? To be honest, I have no idea. Okay, I'll just start there. Um, uh, Maybe an idea... um, The the apostles are the representatives of God and they have been given a a special power, a special authority, special power and authority that nobody after them ever had. Okay, so it's not an authority I have. It's not an authority any preacher on TV has. These 12 apostles were a special group of people. Um, And uh, it seems that maybe they have been given a certain uh, ability. Jesus told Peter, you'll have the keys to the kingdom to be able to unlock the doors for, for new gospel expansion. And maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe, maybe Peter is supposed to go with John, and they're supposed to, to sort of unlock a new region for the gospel. And the sign of this, perhaps, is the Holy Spirit falling on a new group of people who were not Jewish. This would have been the first time that this had happened, and it was pretty significant, The Holy Spirit is not just for Jews. That's what Peter and John are declaring when they lay hands on a group of people that, if you remember last week, they used to think were too dirty to associate with. And now, not only do they not think they're dirty anymore, but they're laying their hands on them and calling them their brothers and sisters and watching as the Holy Spirit gives them the same power and authority that the the Jewish Christians have. This is really a big deal. I think maybe that's why it happens this way. I'm not 100% sure, though. So if you have a different take on it, I'd love to, love to hear that. Um, but in response to all of this, verse 18, Simon sees that the Spirit is given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And so he looks at Peter and John, and he offers them money. Mind you, he probably got fairly wealthy from plying his trade as a sorcerer. He was the, he was the guy in Samaria. So he's got some money, and he offers them money saying in verse 19, give me this power also so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon slips back into his default mode. All of his years of training, all of his years of working this business, what he knows is that different Different names of different deities and different incantations and different spells can be used to accomplish different things. And he's like, oh my word, the name of Jesus somehow brings this powerful force from heaven that everybody's calling the Holy Spirit. I got to get in on that action. He's like, I know, the, I know the other deities' names. I've learned the Egyptian spells and I've learned the Samaritan spells and I've I've learned this stuff from Judea, and I've learned this stuff from Cappadocia. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm well-versed in the spells and all the magic and all the dark arts of the first century world, but there's one that I haven't mastered yet. Peter and John, would you unlock this door for me so that I can walk through this door, and for a price, I can help other people walk through this door too. Now, that probably bothers you to hear that, Right? Does that bother you? You guys are kind of quiet. Does that bother you? It bothers Sean. I don't know if it bothers anybody else, but he nodded. Um, It bothers Philip. Because Philip in verse 20 is like, dude, may your silver be destroyed with you. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Now, at this point, a a lot of Christians who read this, grapple with this issue was simon a christian or not some people will read the verse and say well it seems obvious to us that simon never was an authentic follower of jesus christ because he's going back to his sorcery he's going back to to trying to use the holy spirit to make money he doesn't seem like he's a follower of jesus and so he was just a fake an impostor, And in fact, we know from reading the Bible that Jesus said there will come many who, who say, Lord, look, Lord, Lord, look at what I've done in your name, and they're not genuine followers of God. So some people read this verse and they think, that's Simon. Simon is one of those people that Jesus was talking about who was not an authentic follower of Jesus. And as time went on, we saw the fruit of his life, and it was not good. Uh, others read it and they say, well, but verse 13 says that Simon himself believed. And this is the same way that Luke referred to other people who were genuine Christians. Um, And so there's sort of this um, difference of opinion. Uh, My own um, is that I I think, and I could see this going other way, but I think Simon was a genuine Christian because this is the same way, the same term, the same phraseology that Luke uses other times to refer to other people who have come to faith. And I think what Luke is trying to say is, this person got saved, this person believed, this person believed, this person believed, and oh yes, Simon believed too. But the problem comes in with after that. Because Simon starts clutching for power. If you, if you go back and you look at verse 19, that's what he's after. Because he's a magician, because he's a sorcerer, because he's used to employing power to make money, in verse 19 he says, give me this power also simon is clutching for power and whether you interpret it as in simon is a backslidden christian or whether he's just an imposter who never came to christ in the first place whichever route you go he's clutching for power trying to use the holy spirit to make money that much is clear but i want to point out the, a couple of contrasts first between simon and jesus Simon clutches for power. He can't get enough of it. He's willing to pay, to have power over people's lives. Jesus had all the power in the world, and according to Philippians 2, he relinquished his power. He said, I'm not going to use this power independently, even though I have every right to. He submits himself to the Father's authority. He chooses not to use his power. Simon clutched power. Paul said in Philippians, Jesus didn't think his deity was something to be grasped or something to be clutched. His power wasn't something that that he had to hold on to. Simon's like, yeah, I'm all about that power life. Jesus is like, I'm all about giving the power away. Second contrast Simon wants to win, he wants to be successful. Every culture, every society, every era defines winning and success differently. Nowadays, it might be uh, having a good job, having a good family, being able to travel a lot, being able to retire early so you can pursue the American dream, being able to be your own boss. For a lot of Americans, that's the goal be able to quit my job and work for myself. We all define winning and success differently. Simon is defining winning and success in a very me-focused way. It's about me being able to acquire power to make myself wealthy. And in the process, he's willing to oppress other people to get what he wants. But the guy he's talking to, the Apostle Peter, rebukes him And then he proceeds to live his life. We know from church history, we're pretty sure how Peter died. Peter died upside down on a cross. When it came time for him to be martyred for his faith, tradition has it that Peter said, I'm not worthy to die on a cross just like Jesus. I'm not on Jesus' level, so flip me upside down. Peter understood that winning happens when we lose. Peter understood that power wasn't something to be clutched. Power, I mean, you talk about power. Peter is one of the 12 apostles who has been told he's got the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and he has just unlocked the door to Samaria, and the Holy Spirit has fallen. And Peter's like, yeah, I don't don't need the power. I don't need the power for my life to be all that grand and all that great. I don't need to win Jesus said, take up a cross and follow me. Peter's like, I'm ready to do that. And he proved that with his life. He rebukes Simon because Simon has an ungodly, wicked view of power that is all about himself. And Peter shows us what an upside-down leader looks like. But I think a lot of Christians can fall into the trap of wanting power. And power is so seductive, right? You ever been in charge of something and you're like, sweet, now I can do whatever I want. Maybe you were the supervisor at work. Maybe you were the leader of your family. Maybe you're a pastor of a church. There are a lot of different ways in our society in which we have structures of power. And some of us clutch for power, and power can change us. Power can make us do things that we never thought we would do. And a lot of Christians, I think, fall into the trap of thinking, we need power to be on our side. That's what Simon is doing. He's like, hey, we can employ power, and we can do good with this power, right? Don't miss this. Simon is saying the end justifies the means. He's saying, if I can accomplish something good of bringing the Holy Spirit down on people, then it doesn't really matter how I accomplish that. Right? Now, don't you think it would be good for the Holy Spirit to fall on the Samaritans? Would that not be a good thing? Yeah. And Simon's like, so it doesn't really matter how it gets done. If I have to cut some corners, if if I have to do something ungodly in order to bring about a higher good then that's what I'll do I think a lot of Christians can fall into this trap of of approaching power this way we approach power like Simon and we think that we can accomplish good things in bad ways I think our craving for power can be seen in a couple of um, Recent examples from American culture. Uh, Ones that may even matter and resonate with you. I want to talk for just a second about Kanye, who I've already mentioned, and Chick-fil-A, both of which have been in the news uh, recently. So Kanye West used to not be uh, anybody that anybody ever associated with Christianity. He was more like the Simon the Sorcerer from the beginning of the verses, now, he's proclaiming that Jesus is king. People are, Some people are skeptical. They're like, we're going to wait and see if, like Simon the Sorcerer, he ends up falling away. And others are like, no, we think, he's, we think he's legit. Then there's Chick-fil-A. So Chick-fil-A uh, was is a company. Uh, it's not a Christian company because a company can't be Christian. Only people can. Uh, I think a lot of people get confused by that. Uh, but Chick-fil-A is a company that has... Uh, has a reputation for being based on Christian values. And this week, uh, it was announced that uh, they were changing their policies about how they do their charitable donations, and that they were going to donate to causes that were uh, less supportive of Christian values than they used to. Now, the reporting on that has been confusing. Some people are saying it's not actually true. Um, Chick-fil-A hasn't really clarified the matter yet. But I want to take these two situations and see what we can learn from them. On the one hand, I feel like some Christians are encouraged because Kanye is on our side now. And they feel as if Kanye being on our side sort of validates our message, kind of, sort of, at least in American culture. Others are concerned because we have lost our biggest corporate sponsor. Chick-fil-A is not on our side anymore, so we have less credibility, we have less power in the culture. But, we don't need celebrity backing for our gospel. And We definitely don't need a corporate sponsor. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Simon the sorcerer, before he comes to faith in Christ, he is called, quote, the great power of God. Paul, in Romans 1, says, no, the great power of God is the gospel. It is the power that transforms people's lives, and we don't need somebody in the culture that we latch onto, whether it's a person, whether it's a company, to say, okay, this makes us feel better about our faith. This gives us more standing. This gives us more credibility. My friends, we have Jesus on the throne. Literally, the great power of God. I don't know how Kanye is going to turn out, nor do I know what Chick-fil-A is going to do. Um, I do know that I can't get all hung up and worrying about either one. Because when I do, I think I fall into the seductive trap of power. Thinking when powerful people are on my side, it will be better for me. I don't need powerful people on my side. I'm supposed to go to a cross and be willing to die upside down. That's discipleship. That's Christianity. It's about giving away power like Jesus does. It's about laying down our lives for the least of these like Jesus did. Those of us who have power which is all of us, you have power over somebody. You have power over your server at your restaurant. You can be mad at them when they don't serve you as well as you think they ought to. You have power over them. Husbands are called to be the spiritual leaders of their home. They have power in their family. Pastors have power in a church. And when husbands domineer, Their wives, when pastors manipulate their congregations, when you jockey with your colleagues for position, when you mistreat people who are beneath you, even if it's your kids, we are displaying an ungodly view of power that is more akin to Simon the sorcerer than Jesus the Christ. And Peter rebukes him. He says, this is not of God. This is not how we live. This is not how we act. This this power cannot be bought, and it dare not be used for ungodly purposes. Jesus in magic, Jesus in power. The last thing I want to talk about is Jesus and prodigals, as in the prodigal son. Jesus in prodigals. Um, verse 13, it really seems like Simon believed. But four verses later, you're like, I don't know if he still believes anymore. This, is, this confuses us, right? And so there's this debate that I mentioned earlier about whether or not Simon is a genuine Christian or whether he was just an imposter all along. We've talked a bit in our church lately about how people can wander from the faith. And like the, the hymn writer, we feel that temptation acutely. The song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave, the God I love. And each of us feel that acute temptation tugging at our souls, calling us to wander from God. I think that Simon is feeling that pull. He has, according to verse 13, believed. And then a few verses later, he's feeling that human propensity to wander to wander away from God, to go back to his old life. What was his old life? He was a sorcerer. He was a magician. He consulted with the demonic. And so he slips right back into that trap, just like he was before he believed, just like he was before he made this commitment to Christ. He goes back to his old ways. And many of us, whether we've been walking with God for 30 days or 30 years, we feel the same desires, the same temptations, the same pull to go back. Simon is a little bit scared, I think, by what Peter says. In verse 20, Peter looks at him and he says very boldly and authoritatively, May your silver be destroyed with you. That's scary You hear talk like that especially from one of the Twelve Apostles. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Um, Peter challenges him and he calls him to repent. It's interesting to me, two words in verse 22. I want you to look at it. Peter said, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. Seems like Peter is acknowledging that it's possible that Simon has gone too far down the road and he won't be forgiven. Now, at this point, we're like, but I thought God forgives all sins. He's ready to to welcome every prodigal home, and and I think that's true. I think other verses of the Bible teach us that, so how do we square that with this? Um, I think this verse, and perhaps a, a few others, teach us that there comes a time in a person's life where they go too far down the road, and they will never want to return, and sometimes the way that God judges us is he lets us do exactly what we wanted. He's like, okay, you want this? You want this? I'll let you have it. And after a while, it has so eaten at our souls and corroded our minds that a few years down the road, we have no desire to come back. We never will. Not all prodigals come home. Some do. And for those who do, the Father, the good, good Father that we sang about is ready to receive them all. But some won't. And so I know what you're thinking. Was Simon one of the ones who came home or not? Look at verse 24. Simon is scared, I think, and he says, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And then, nothing. We don't, we don't read about Peter and John or Philip praying for him. We don't read about him coming back to faith. We don't read about him being restored. We don't, it just says they testified and spoke the word of the Lord, and then they went back to Jerusalem. And we're, like, left hanging. How does Simon's story end? Is he a prodigal who comes home? Or is he a prodigal who wanders too far and is lost? We don't know. Now, if we read church history, if we go beyond the story of the Bible, uh, there's some conflicting traditions that seem to indicate that Simon did not come home depending on which stories you believe. He might have ended up in Rome proclaiming that he was God, proclaiming that he had the ability to fly, which most magicians in the first century would say that, actually. Um, Because at first I was like, that's outlandish. But then I read that most of them did that. Um, Some of those stories are murky, and we're not quite sure about the historical details. There's a big question mark over the life of Simon the sorcerer. We're not really sure how it ends. We know that right here, he faces a major fork in the road, and he's rebuked about his sin, and he's standing at the fork in the road, and then the story ends. We can piece together some things from church history to to try to figure it out, but at the end of the day, it's still a big question mark. Does Simon come home Or does he not? We just don't know. Maybe you are facing a fork in the road of your life. To sin or to not sin. To doubt or to believe. To embrace the family of God or to run from it. I don't know the twists and turns that your story involves any more than I know the twists and turns that my story involves, but I do know that following the path of Simon is not worth it. Maybe you've been stuck spiritually. Maybe you're, you're grinding along and you're, your wheels are stuck in the mud and you're not getting anywhere. Maybe you're faced with this crucial decision, do I go right or do I go left? I think the story of Simon needs to be a cautionary tale for us that we look at Simon and we see that his story doesn't have a satisfactory ending. And that could be our story. It could be your story. It could be mine. We might go down the road for a while and escape, like the prodigal son, be able to come home, or we might never return. So I want to challenge each of us to take that long, hard look in the mirror. Jesus comes through Peter and John and Philip, and he challenges Simon to repent. And I think Jesus speaks to all of us because we're all prodigals at heart. We're all prodigals at heart, and he calls us to repent. So when we're prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. When we're prone to leave the God we love, we need to listen carefully for the voice of Jesus because he's calling us home. He's calling you home and we need to heed his call because there might come a point in our lives where it's too late where he might cease calling us i don't quite know what that means but it seems to be some indication in the bible that sometimes god quits calling and that is a very scary thing When the gospel comes to Samaria, Simon the sorcerer has a choice to make as he's confronted with the reality that Jesus is the king. It's a choice that we still have to make. I think to refocus on the three things we've talked about, this choice is a choice to flee magic and darkness because Jesus is better. It's a choice to give away power instead of clutching for it because that's what Jesus did. And it's a choice to stay faithful today because there's no guarantees about tomorrow. So we have to ask ourselves, are we with Simon? Are we sons of Simon the sorcerer, or are we sons of God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that you are better. You are better than the forces of darkness that enslaved Simon's heart the forces of darkness that used to enslave my heart before you set me free. I pray that you would work your power, not the fake, cheap, inauthentic, dark magic of the demonic powers, but that you would work your authentic Holy Spirit power in this service to convict us, to reprove us of sin and righteousness and judgment, that we might do real business with you today, That we would not play church, but that we would be changed. Help us to flee the magic, to give away our power. And to be the prodigal that comes home rather than the prodigal that wanders too far. In Jesus' name, amen.